Welcome to the Society Column, Swansea's social sciences podcast. My name is Megan Salter, and in this week's episode, I talk to Dr. Luca Trenta, Associate Professor in Politics, Philosophy and International Relations at Swansea University. We discussed his research surrounding the US government's involvement in the assassination of foreign officials from the Cold War to the present day. More specifically, we talked about the US ban on assassination, known contestation and targeted killings. Our conversation took place in late April 2023, and I hope you enjoy it. So Luca, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Um, I was just wondering if you wouldn't mind starting with telling us about your area of, of research, please. Oh Yes, of course, and thank you for having me. Um, at the moment, my area of research is primarily the US government involvement in the assassination of foreign officials, which is quite a broad field, and it is uh, primarily historical. So I look at the evolution of US policy from the early Cold War, so mid-1940s, up until uh, 2020, really, with uh, the drone strike on Qasem Soleimani, ordered by the Trump administration. And I looked both at the history of US foreign policy and also at the language and the justifications that have been used throughout the various decades for the US government to become involved in this type of activities. So what led you to this specific area of research, Luca? Um, Well, when I was doing my PhD or towards the end of my PhD, it was really uh, the high noon or the peak time of drone warfare with the Obama administration in office and drone strikes had basically skyrocketed in the Obama administration's first term. And in its second term, the Obama administration found itself in the position of having to justify this policy because they were receiving uh, criticisms from Congress, the public, NGOs like Code Pink, for example. Um, and so the Obama administration sent out a lot of officials from the administration to give public speeches uh, to justify drone strikes. And they also leaked a few documents that contained their sort of legal reasoning behind uh, drone strikes. And so this created two elements of interest for me. One, I was interested in the language being used by the Obama administration. And so I looked at uh, their justifications, their arguments surrounding self-defense and so on. Uh, But something that kept cropping up in these speeches was a somewhat unconvincing effort by the Obama administration to tell us that what they were doing was not assassination because assassination in the US government is prohibited by an executive order. Uh, And so that that was the second element of my interest. So what is this executive order? Where did it come from? How did we get to this point? And so initially I started studying primarily drone strikes and the Obama administration language surrounding them. And then I started to get the feeling that the study of drone strikes was a bit too crowded, like a lot of people were doing it. I did not have the sort of technical or technological knowledge surrounding drones themselves to make a contribution. So I was looking primarily at the language. And so I thought, well, actually, why not study how this executive order on assassination came about? And I started studying it. And so I looked at the 1970s. There is a big media scandal uh, based on what is called the CIA family jewels, which is a collection of documents with all the dirty things that the CIA has done in the early Cold War. This is leaked to the press. There are investigations. Congress runs its own investigations. And eventually, the Ford administration, which is quite, well, which is in power at the time and is quite worried that Congress might establish a law 
that would very much constrain the conduct of the CIA. They kind of prevent any congressional legislation by publishing this executive order. And the executive order is really somewhat of a whitewash. It doesn't really constrain the intelligence community. But it does contain um, an executive order prohibiting assassination, which of course is very vague and leaves a lot of space for manipulation. So could you tell us one thing that you would like people to know about your research findings? Um, I think there is a general understanding within uh, media and in certain academic circles that, of course, assassination is something bad and, and morally uh, reprehensible. And of course, the United States has this great reputation as a liberal democracy and the upholder of a liberal international order, which is very much debatable um, in itself. But the general understanding is that the United States did some very bad things in the early Cold War, got involved in assassination attempts in the early Cold War, for example, against uh, Fidel Castro with all sorts of gadgets. So we can go into a discussion of all those gadgets uh, if we want. But then there is a moment in the 1970s in which these dirty tricks of the CIA are publicly exposed. They are investigated. And out of that investigation comes what is called an executive order, which is a document signed by the president. And this executive order includes a ban on assassination, so a prohibition for U.S. government officials to become involved in assassination. And the general understanding is that this is a very important uh, watershed moment. So the U.S. government kind of did assassination before the ban. With the ban, it completely stops up until 9-11, which of course creates a whole new international context for counterterrorism and so on. What my research is trying to, to show, I guess, is that there is a lot more continuity between uh, pre-1975 and post-1975, and more generally in the U.S. government involvement in assassination and the use of assassination. What is true is that after 1975, the U.S. government finds itself in the awkward position of really wanting to do policies that are assassination, but it also cannot possibly be seen as doing assassination because assassinations are prohibited by a ban. And so the US government finds itself in the position of having to provide sometimes public, sometimes private justifications and legitimations as to why what they're doing, even if it really, really looks like an assassination attempt, is not an assassination attempt, is something else. So what they're doing is they are denying that their activities are assassination, and instead they're something else. So they are uh, strikes in self-defense or strikes against uh, command and control targets, but they're not assassinations, that, so that they can be publicly justified as something perfectly fine and not a violation of the ban. Mm -hmm. So I think there is this sense that this perception that the United States was involved in assassination early on, and then it stopped, and then after 9-11 it restarted. What I'm trying to say is that we have to look at the evolution of US policy from the early Cold War through the 1970s, and especially in the 1980s and 90s, where the ban on assassination is eroded. And it is this process of erosion that basically creates the foundation 
for post-9-11 activities that we see, such as drone strikes, targeted killings, and so on. And so your research then does partly rely on a sort of norm contestation. Mm -hmm. Um, Could you speak more about that? Yeah, so uh, norm contestation primarily refers to efforts to uh, challenge an existing norm. Um, And this can happen in in multiple uh, manners. It can be public or more secret. Uh, And it doesn't necessarily mean that contesting a norm makes it weaker. Uh, Norm contestation is sort of neutral. It could either uh, strengthen a norm, perhaps by better defining its meaning, or it could weaken a norm, for example, by reducing the remit of that norm, so reducing the occasions in which that norm is valid. And so what I try to do in my research is to show that after the ban on assassination is established in 1975, since it's very vague, it simply says that no employee of the US government should become involved in assassination, but it doesn't define employee of the US government, it doesn't define assassination, it does not define what targets are, per- are permissible and what are not. So building on this ambiguity of the norm, US policymakers, when they have a sort of strategic interest in pursuing a policy that could be understood as assassination, try to define it in a manner that either circumvent the norm or they try to reshape the norm. A clear example is in the 1980s, um, the Reagan administration really wants to get rid of Muammar Gaddafi in Libya. They try to do it by supporting proxies, but the proxies fail. And so eventually they decide to conduct an airstrike, a bombing of his headquarters and his tent. And this creates public criticism because people in Congress and in the media argue, how could you tell us that this is not an assassination? This, you're clearly trying to bomb Gaddafi. And what the Reagan administration argues is that basically it's not assassination. First of all, because it's in self-defense. So it's a response to Gaddafi's support for terrorist attacks in the 1980s. And second, it's not assassination because they are targeting um, a building. They're not targeting a person. They're targeting a building, so his headquarters. If Gaddafi happens to be in that building, well, it's just a nice piece of good luck, but it was not our intent to assassinate Gaddafi. If he's there precisely when we think he's there and he gets killed and we have very good intelligence that he will be there, oh well, we were just lucky. So as you can see, this is playing of what it means for uh, an operation to be an assassination attempt. It's playing on an intent argument. We're doing something, but it's not our intent to assassinate. And so this intent argument and the self-defense argument really become the backbone of this process of norm contestation, and especially the self-defense argument will take off extensively after 9-11 and even under the Obama administration when most drone strikes are defended on the basis of a self-defense argument and the imminent threat that, or so-called imminent threat that suspected terrorists are posing. So why then do you believe that this area of research matters for the future? I mean, it's always very very difficult for an academic to convince people. And this is very important. Like, it's not just my niche nerdy interest. It's <laughs> incredibly important. Um, 
I think it's important because looking at the United States helps us put in context a bit some of the debates that surround often other countries' involvement in state-sponsored assassinations. So it, it, it helps us contextualize this. But I think it's also quite important because in general, state-sponsored assassinations have become particularly prominent. Uh, we've had quite a few cases in recent years. For example, Khashoggi, uh, the New York Times journalist that was killed, the Saudi embassy in, in Turkey. Um, we had, of course, assassination attempts carried out by Russia with the Skripal poisoning. Um, and we had also what I would call um, political murder. So this is when uh, an individual not sponsored by a state has killed uh, a public official. They're becoming more prominent, I think, than in the recent past. Uh, centuries ago, they were probably more prominent, but they're becoming more prominent than in the recent past. And we have seen that there are a lot of strategic, political, and reputational consequences of these state-sponsored assassination. For example, after the Skripal poisoning, you had uh, sanctions put on Russia. The UK government expelled uh, Russian diplomats. So there were a lot of strategic and geopolitical consequences of these acts. Um, and so it's quite important, I think, to study them, both to have, and this is the more academic side, a sense of their history, where they come from, why states engage in this practice, but also on the policy side, because it's important to understand how states have traditionally reacted to these state-sponsored assassinations, what reactions have worked, which ones have um, backfired, and so on. So there is, I think, both a purely academic historical angle to the topic that maybe is interesting more to academically-minded people, but there is also a policy angle that is quite interesting. And this is why I'm organizing a conference uh, here in Swansea, which will kind of bring together uh, experts on both sides, I guess. Thank you very much for the conversation, Luca. It's been really great to talk to you and thank you again for being on the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Good luck with your conference. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Society Column. The next episode will be released on Monday and you can find it wherever you listen to your podcasts.